It's October 26th, 2010, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of the show. The last several weeks have been a very busy one as I've been recording a half dozen interviews for the show, including conversations with three National Geographic photographers. So you have a lot to look forward to in the coming weeks. As part of the changes I've made to the site of thecandidframe.com, I've incorporated my own photo blog to the site, and I've just completed a multi-part review on the new Olympus E5 HDSLR. It's the first of what should be a regular review of not only cameras, but lenses, software, camera bags, and various other photographic accessories that come across my desk. All of these reviews are going to be based on my own personal experience of using the equipment in my actual work. So check it out by visiting the Candid Frame website or simply going directly to altadinaphoto.com. Also, as some of you may already know, I'm writing my first book entitled Chasing the Light, which will be released by Peach Pit Press in the spring. And I'm conducting a photo walk in downtown Los Angeles on December 4th. If you're interested in these things, please consider following me on Twitter and Facebook, where I'll be releasing updates and details on each of these and, and more. Lastly, please consider supporting the show by either contributing a donation using PayPal or purchasing a book through the Amazon links that I provide on the blog. If this show is as much of an inspiration to you as it is for me, please let me know how much it means to you by taking the time to support the show. Every little bit helps. Not everyone who listens to this show contributes, so those of you that do are really helping to make the show happen, and I can't thank you enough. Now, today's guest is National Geographic photographer Jay Dickman. This Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer has had well over two dozen assignments for the National Geographic, as well as working as a photojournalist for over 30 years. His editorial and commercial work has taken him all over the world, and his images really do speak for themselves. He is also the co-author of what I consider the best instructional book on digital photography there is, Perfect Digital Photography, which he co-wrote with a former Candid Frame guest and friend of mine, Jay Kinghorn. I really benefited from this conversation, and I know you will too. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Jay Digman. Well, Jay, welcome to the Candid Frame. I'm glad we finally were able to uh, align all the stars together to, to sit down and talk. Well, it did seem to take a little bit. Those stars and continents just were kind of out of out of whack there. Now we're, all the stars are lined up, the moon is in the seventh house, etc. Here we are. <laughs> well, let's start off the conversation talking about storytelling. I think when I look at your images individually, there there's so many beautiful photographs that you have on your website and, and nice. I've discovered elsewhere. But I think at the heart of what you do is that you are a storyteller with, with a camera. And why don't you speak to us about what it means to be able to tell a story with a photograph, not just make a pretty picture? Yeah, I mean, that's real. That's kind of what drives me as a photographer, um, being a geographic photographer, too. I mean, we are constantly dealing with visual narrative. Uh, I think humans in general, uh, 
are storytellers and we we think we think visually you know if i mention 911 if i mention the vietnam war if i mention your first birthday your first wedding or for some of us your second wedding or your first pet all those whenever i mention those images it's a still image that comes to mind uh that's how we think that's how the mind processes uh that whole thing we don't start a video clip running we think in terms of still images so therefore a great photograph and or a great photographer can can create that image that that is how we remember something by and that to me is that storytelling process you know the old saw that uh, picture says it takes a thousand words or whatever it is you know really it speaks truly uh, you know, if you think of Eddie Adams' photograph of the Viet Cong suspect getting shot, if you think of the Hindenburg photograph or 9-11 images or uh, so many classic photographs that, um, you know, tell such a deep story and, and, and attaches us to that time in history, um, you know, you think back to even the Le Chevet Caves in, in France, 25,000 years ago, that was one of our first human storytellers with a piece of charcoal getting in there and drawing a, a in set of images of their hunt of, of, of animals. And as it progressed and became more sophisticated, the, the storytelling process uh, became more, 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 more direct and more uh, defining. And then when photography entered the picture, literally, uh, it became such a, a, a real record of what uh, we are about as humans. And I think it's a huge responsibility the photographer, the photojournalist, the reportage photographer has in, in capturing accurately and honestly um, that story. You know, and I, we, I teach my own workshops, and this is kind of the, the logo of the workshops, the art of visual narrative, that, you know, if you if you attach... I think a template of storytelling to any experience you have, you'll come out with a greater body of work, a more interesting and engaging body of work. Uh, you start with that sense of place photograph that tells your viewer where you are. Uh, you know, the, uh, as I always say, that your your audience isn't standing by you when you're standing in the center of Iceland and you're smelling the incredible odors and the, the cold wind is blowing and the 360 degrees of sensory overload is going on. And you as the photographer have to, you know, convey that sense of place, that sense of magic to your viewers. And that next part of that template is is introducing the characters. Who are these people? It's the same thing that a writer's doing. Then you, you, you introduce your storyline. You introduce a conflict or something that can be taken a resolution in your story. Then you step in and you create intimate, close details, which forces your viewer to see a world in a different way than they're used to seeing. And kind of me, the, next, the fourth step is uh, the moment. Uh, as Cardi Brisson said, you know, every every situation in our lives has that decisive moment, and that's what the photographer is looking for. And those moments bring energy and power to that to that storytelling process. And then you kind of close it out, and you don't have to put it in that order. You, know, you can even you can often open your 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 storytelling with a, a brilliant, strong portrait. Uh, introducing who, who this person, who this character is, and why you should care about them. Then you go into the sense of place. So this this can be moved around to work effectively. Uh, I'm a real believer in that storytelling process, too, that less is more. 
we've all been to a friend's house or a relative's house when they've come back from a trip somewhere and <clears throat> excuse me they want to show you 250 300 images of this place and by four or five images into this process you know it's going to be a brutally long evening versus that individual that understands that concept of visual narrative and storytelling they put together 25 to 40 images and you grab your audience you grab them by the eyeballs you take them into your world you walk them through your story um and hopefully at the end of that process, their jaw is somewhere around their knees. They know what the place looks like and smells like and feels like. So this is this is a brief uh, discussion of that storytelling process. And you're speaking primarily of, of the photo essay. Let's talk about telling a story with a single image. Because with a photo essay, you have a series of different images to help flesh out the complete story. But we're talking about being able to make a single photograph that tells a story what's involved with that. And let's, let's limit our conversation to telling a story with a portrait of a person. That sounds good. I think if you do that, I think you, you can do it with a single portrait, but I think stepping back a bit and creating an environmental portrait where you can bring that sense of place in, in addition to introducing that character. So you've got the, you're, you're photographing in India or you're photographing in Davenport, Iowa, whatever. Uh, you're photographing a guy that is a bridge builder. and you're, uh, So you move in closely and you ask permission and you get the permission to photograph that person. Um, and I really think that this is, you know, photographing people is a, can be an intimidating process, but this is something that I do regularly in my work. And I approach people either here or, or internationally, domestically, internationally asking permission. Uh, and they, I find that about 80 to 85% of people give you permission. And I think really everybody loves to have kind of validated that what they do is relevant and that camera can become that tool of validation. Um, and once you get that permission, I think the first few times an, an aspiring photographer, especially when you do that, you kind of go through that dance and get permission. It's pretty intimidating. And that person says, yeah, take my picture. And they're standing there looking at you. So, wow, click, boom, run, get out of there. Uh, but what I think if you really want to work on that storytelling process with it, stay in that stay in that relationship that you've created. for a, Give it some time for it to develop. Uh, photography is not always a... a instantaneous thing. Sometimes it, it's, you've got to stay with that situation until it develops, until it builds that moment. So you stay with that bridge builder and you're talking to them and you say, I oh, just go back to doing what you're doing. So they start going back and you get in close and you photograph that person with sweater, or whatever on their face or dirt in their face or, or beautiful afternoon light and the, the catch light in the eyes and they look up at you and this wonderful light coming across and in the background is the bridge and then that single image on those two three two or three layers of information you are telling a story you've introduced this person you've introduced this place you've put them together which the viewer in many ways will naturally assume well this is person in that bridge there's a connection there uh, and by putting those things in multiple layers like that, that I think in a way builds that storytelling process in a single photograph. I think one of the images that, that really has that layering is an image in your portrait section on your website where you have a young boy in a, in a cowboy hat 
and I guess he's holding some dirt or some wheat or something. It's yep. falling through his hands. And then I have a man who I assume is his father and his brother in in the background. You look at that photograph, and you can see where you could have done a straight head and shoulder portrait and, and made a beautiful image. But now with this image, you're providing a context in terms of a sense of place. And then with the inclusion of the other two people, there's a... Um, a relationship context that's provided as well in that. Let's talk about those ideas that you you just mentioned in terms of this specific image, in terms of what you were considering in terms of building the image and the story you were trying to convey in that single photograph. Boy, you've got good taste, I'll tell you. That's, that's actually a very favored photograph. That was a Time magazine cover, uh, Time for Kids magazine cover. Uh story was on drought in Colorado, and... This family was great. I went out there to photograph them, and I wanted to convey this kid's world. You know, this. You know, exactly. Yes, I could have photographed a portrait of him, but I was trying to create that, as you described it, that multi-layered image. So the kids in the foreground. I've got a soft box. I've got an assistant holding a box off or a reflector. One of the two. I can't remember on that. Off to the side. The kid's got the dry land pouring out between his fingers, and there should be some kind of, you know, waft, some of that dust wafting off. And in the background is his brother and his father. Um, and you look at it, and if if that picture is successful, it pulls you into it. Your eye goes. I saw a study done once <clears throat> recently on on what we look for in photographs, and one of the very first things that humans look for in photographs are eyes which is a natural, but, you know, you bring the eyes in and you create a depth to that person and we, we, we react to that. So kind of your first thing is to go to the, the dirt in the eyes and then your eye kind of works across it and you see the dirt falling out and it goes to the arid looking dirt behind him. His cowboy hats tip back a bit and in the background are his father and his brother. So within that context of one frame, one click, you know, you've created something that hopefully – tells the story and that you know we had we were uh a bit enabled on that one because the the text um drought or something of that effect was in there um but i think the picture on its own right works in telling that story you almost didn't need those those words floating in the air but um i think that picture looks dry you've got the big big uh, cloudless sky behind them. Yeah. So I, I think that's that's a great that's a great photograph to choose to discuss this because I really do think by having that foreground layer one click boom the dirt going through his fingers doom there's the second layer the dirt around him his cowboy outfit his cowboy hat you know this is not in downtown New York uh, you place him in some place that is very specific to the to the context of that picture. And then you have the the other characters in the background, which allows your eye to go across the frame from him back to them, uh, creating, again, that other layer of information in the background. How, how preconceived was this image? Did you go out there with the specific intent of making exactly this photograph, or did you have a general sense of what you wanted to capture in terms of the story you wanted to tell, and then you just brought these elements together uh, improvise, you know, uh, just by improvising. Yes. 
Yes. No, we want me to go deeper than that. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> the request was, we want to cover, from my photo editor at the magazine for time, we want to cover to describe the drought. We have this family. Here you go. Go do it. So not only are you building the photograph uh, from the assignment description, but you're also building it conceptually. Even to, I shot that specifically so I could have the word time floating in the background above them or floating directly above them, so I had to leave space for that. But it's, it's pretty interesting. I love this whole process because you get the assignment, you get the job, you know, okay, here's, here's the theme of what you're, you're going to be addressing. That's what the photo editor will say to me, and it's up to, for, up to me at that point to convey that. So I'm out there... Uh, the, and a cover is really not photodern is is kind of a separate critter because you do have to build it. Uh, so I had you know I brought the kid in close to the camera. Like I said, I had a reflector or a, I can't remember if it was a reflector or a, a, a box, a soft box. Uh, I know there was a reflector off to his other side, so I could get a little bit of a three dimensional light to him. And I had him in the foreground, and then boom those people in the background. So that was a, that was a uh, built image based on the criteria my editor gave me, if that makes sense. Let's get, let's talk about the, the idea of the photo essay in terms, in the context of what you do for what you did in terms of on a newspaper as compared to what you did uh, or and do for National Geographic. I think we we're dealing with very different time constraints there. Yep. And so, what are so the different considerations that you have to make when you are telling a story on a newspaper as opposed to on assignment for National Geographic? Uh, they are two different uh, critters, completely newspapers and the National Geographic, but. Uh, Many, many photographers who work for Geographic come from newspaper backgrounds because you're used to dealing with visual narrative with that storytelling process. Um, instead of having weeks to work on one particular subject as one would with Geographic in newspaper days, it was you were shooting three to five assignments a day, having to wrap up the entire story often in one image that, um, you know, photographs are extraordinarily important in publications. Uh, it's been proven that, you know, the, the, the viewer, the reader, the paper, the, or the magazine, or the website, or whatever source it is that we're viewing photographs or art, that, uh, you know, the audience is going to give an image less than a second of attention. So the photographer's job, one of the main uh, jobs of the photographer is to create an image so strong, compelling, visually appealing that it stops that person, stops that viewer, pulls them into your world, uh, gives them that information, tells them a story that is uh, uh, pretty darn direct, and then lets that person go on. So, so newspapers are a great learning ground for me. Uh, because you were forced to bring so many elements in that storytelling process together in one image uh, that in some ways would give them a bit of sense of place, give them that power, that moment. Um, there's kind of three different parts of that newspaper world. There was uh, spot news, which was photographing things that were out of control uh, completely, that you were you were just a, a, almost a visual voyeur on that uh, 
Um, then the next one was sports, which was a great learning ground because it taught you timing. Um, you know, the spot news, going back to that, it taught you to, 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 within your own style of photography, capture those images in that scene that was, or in that event that was completely out of control and you were trying to capture images that really were of your style. So that was what spot news taught me as a photographer. Sports taught me the timing issue as a photographer, that you had this controlled mayhem in this space in front of you, a football field or arena or basketball court or baseball diamond uh, and you were looking for that 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 peak action which was great in teaching that aspect uh then feature work which was the other part of that kind of that holy trinity of newspaper photography uh, feature was finding an image kind of out of daily life you know uh, you look through a newspaper now uh and or over the last since the existence of newspapers and those daily life photographs of just of kind of common life are put in there to, 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 to give not only visual kind of eye candy to the viewer, but also to, to, again, to inform them and educate them about the life in their community. So those three different components, spot news, sports, and feature, were so important to me to kind of graduate on, or not even graduate, but just to put those three together uh, in becoming a National Geographic photographer. Um, and those three were very critical for me because I find myself uh, always pulling, uh, kind of, um, pulling on the knowledge from that particular that discipline and putting it together. So, yeah, the, the newspaper world is quite different from the geographic world, but the basic foundation, I think, is very, very common between those two. A lot of people would think that, well, if I had access to your kind of equipment and I had the you know, leisure of being able to spend weeks, if not months, working on on an assignment, I'd be able to make just as good of a, a picture. What's, what's your reaction to that? What are they missing oh. when they think that? Oh, you that I, I hear that and I've read that often. You know, the one common question you get is how many how many frames do you shoot? And my response to that is really it doesn't matter uh, because there'll be those situations where you walk in or an event happen, goes on in front of you and you literally get one frame. Uh, on my website, I've got some of the stuff uh, from uh, El Salvador on there, and there's a color photograph of a little girl looking around a. a uh, in a, a tent, uh, she's looking around the post of a tent, and the background is her sister. And in the background of that is her, is the the sun coming up in the background. And I literally had one frame on that that shoot. I it was, it was in Sal, it was in Honduras, across the border from El Salvador, is a refugee camp. Uh, I'd gone there to photograph this camp because I thought it was an important part of my my story on the war in El Salvador. Uh, stayed the night in that refugee camp, uh, saw that family staying in, in their particular tent, uh, went back the next morning and just sat down uh, by the tent, was talking to the little kids there, and I saw the sun coming up. And I've always said, too, that you know when that camera goes on around your neck, to me it's like there's a switch that goes on in your head. That once you that camera goes on around your neck, there's a, it's like you're you're tar- turned on to seeing and thinking photographically. So I saw it. I saw my exposure, everything. Uh, I said something to her. She peeked around, clicked one frame, and that was it. I sat there for another 20 minutes or so, seeing if there was anything else would develop. I didn't shoot anything else. 
then you'll have so there's one frame that that's all I had even made available to me. Then there's other situations where you'll shoot 20, 30, 50, 60 frames, trying to see if that builds to that moment. Uh, and there's those times where it, it won't build to that, and you need to know kind of when to cut your losses and, and depart. Um, so, and it's it's not a thing of just walking in as, and putting the machine, pushing the button down on the frame and machine gunning it and hoping that something will, will develop out of that visual chaos in front of you. Uh, I, I think a good photographer, you can look through their body of work and you can see how a, uh, how they work it, how they build it to that moment. And when you get that moment, you know, it, boy, you know, it. and when you miss it, you know, it just as deeply. Uh, so it's it is absolutely not a thing of just going in. If I shoot enough, I'm going to get something. You know, why not just turn the you know start shooting video and then just do still extracts from that. Um, when I, I wrote a book on digital photography and uh, and a good friend of mine Joe McNally's photographer and I asked him to write a guest piece for us, and we were discussing themes and I said, well, what about you know he was the first photographer to shoot uh, a fully as the first assigned story digitally for the magazine on for, for national geographic on flight and i asked joe oh i said you know god that'd be great to talk about that we ended up him writing about something else but so what about that and he i said because i'm sure that you must have shot far more digitally than you would have with film because you know you don't have to worry there's you know you can keep shooting and he said no i shot far less and uh I said, kind of like, well, why? And he said, well, reduce the paranoia of redundancy. And it is true. You know, one, you're able to confirm with the digital camera that you've got it. Uh, two, every every image is a single event. You can change the the, the ISO, white balance, et cetera, and raw, it doesn't matter. But um, the point is that um, through this technology, you'd think that you'd shoot, shoot so much more. He used the technology, and I think a good photographer uses that technology, so that you can stay honed to what you're shooting and know when you've got that moment and know when you can leave that scene. Uh, yeah, the, the geographic assignments are long, uh, and they give you that luxury of time. But within that luxury of time, let's say you have a three-week assignment to shoot something. I'm also doing my own research on that. I'm setting my trip up. I'm setting my story theme up. I'm, I'm creating that, that visual narrative. So I'm effectively shooting maybe 20% of that assignment length. Uh, all the other time is get, preparing me uh, to get to that point where I can walk out in the field and pick up that camera and press the shutter. So there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into uh, preparing myself, like I said, to press that shutter, to to know where I've got, what direction my story is going, where I'm, uh, where I need to be when I need to press the shutter. So it is not a process of just going in there, pressing the shutter down, and letting some editor go through it and find that moment. It's the process of waiting for that moment, working the scene, and capturing the moment. Hmm. Let's talk about the aesthetic aspects of a of a of a photograph. Um, besides the story storytelling aspects of them, I look at some of your images and they're just beautiful. This is just a standalone photograph in terms of the light, the the composition, um, the use of color relationships within a shot. How how conscious are you of those 
those aspects out of photograph when you're making it, when the primary reason that you're making the photographs is to tell the story? I think you are 100% aware of that. And I think a good photographer, when that camera goes to your eye and you are seeing and thinking photographically, you are aware of everything in the frame. Uh, a good friend of mine is Bert Fox, who was a former senior geographic photo editor. And he said, he, he works with us on our workshop as an instructor. And he always tells people that everything in the frame either works forward or against it. There's no middle ground. So as a photographer, and I always tell our students that you use a viewfinder as your canvas. In other words, you are 100% aware of what's going on uh, at any given moment in the frame. And that's what I was talking about. That's what I was referring to when I was saying spot news, that you're, you've got this mayhem going on. You're into this thing where sometimes it's dangerous to shoot. That camera's up to your eye. You are, you are watching the core of that moment develop in the frame. And often it doesn't, that core, that moment may not fill 100% of that frame. So you're looking around, you're composing it, that you want that core element that's developing to occupy its proper place in the frame. Maybe it's asymmetrically placed, but you're aware of what's going on in the frame elsewhere. Um, probably 99% of what you see on my website is uncropped images. It's 100% of the frame. Um, and that's where I, I, I don't understand photographers who talk about, well, I'll shoot and crop. How can you form your image if you're approaching with that? Again, you use that viewfinder as your frame. So I'm, I think of photographers aware of the, the light, uh, the content, the uh, structuring of that moment as it's building uh Things coming in the side of the frame, things going outside of the frame. Uh, you're, you're completely aware of that. Uh, how, I mean, how can you not be? I think the camera. I'm sponsored by Olympus Camera Company. I'll get my. I'll get that in now. You know? uh, and I, I believe what they're doing is incredible. Um, but my thinking is that the camera is a tool, and the more invisible this tool becomes in that process, uh, where it's strictly the camera becomes strictly a conduit from that event out there happening in front of you to your soul, visual soul as a photographer, that's when the camera's successful. And that's when you are successful as a photographer where you are, you pick that thing up, you're not aware of uh, of kind of it being there and you just put it to your eye and you are looking for that moment to develop and you press a shutter and this is a great manic depressive business. I'll tell you what, because you know when when things are coming together, when it's building, you get it. Holy cow, man! There's it's just amazing, and you know those situations when you miss it. Uh, you know those situations where it doesn't come to fruition, uh, but the worst ones are when it does come to fruition, and for whatever reasons, it you didn't capture it. Uh, but the opposites are, you know, when you get it, oh, my gosh, there's not many feelings in life that can equal that. Well, there's an image that I think is probably a perfect example of that. And it's it's an image of a fireworks display. Um, there's a man in sort of a top hat in the middle. And in the foreground, you have a man wearing some glasses holding an American flag through which the light from the fireworks is is passing through. That image for me is is remarkable in so many ways especially considering how fleeting the moment was. But this image kind of speaks to the first image we talked about in that it's a photograph that's layered. 
there's right. there's a dim, there's a, a, a sense of dimension not only in the foreground and the background but in the intermediate spaces between you could basically you know cut it and you would have like three different photographs here that are sort of merged together that that sort of composition i think is probably one of the bigger challenges that any photographer can face tell me about learning how to see with that sort of dimensionality dimensionality but specifically, tell me more about this photograph and how that how it came to happen. I'm not looking at my website right now, but it's kind of a very dark image, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh-huh. And with the American flag, you see a bit of a flag there. Yeah, and you have the reflection, I think, of the fireworks in the man's round yep. glasses. And, and you see the fireworks going off in the background. Exactly. Yeah, that's Punxsutawney Phil. That was part of a geographic story on weather forecasting. And... Excuse me, I had the luxury of getting to be backstage with those guys, the the committee, the Groundhog Committee, and uh, discuss the weather with Punxsutawney Phil and having a discussion with the rodents, a um, great way to start your morning at 3 a.m. <laughs> but uh, but that that's a great example, too, because that is a very layered photograph. I, I, you know, I, I was shooting it. I saw the guy standing to the right with the, with the glasses, and I thought, oh, if I just come over this way, get a little bit of that reflection on that, which, cre- again, you bring those eyes in in some form or shape, and boom, your eye kind of goes to that. Then you create this, like you said, that second layer of information with the flag and all. Then you've got the background layer. And uh, I tend to shoot real, real tight. I, it's almost impossible to, 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 as I, to address, again, what I was saying a second ago, it's almost impossible to, for me to crop my pictures because, holy cow, there's no room. You know, everything to me is essential in there. Uh, and that picture is a very good example of moving slightly left or right to get, I mean, it can be millimeters you move, literally. And that's why you will see a photographer work a situation. If you ever have that chance uh, to watch a newspaper, a good newspaper photographer or watch a geographic photographer on assignment, watch them work is intriguing because you'll see them so honed in on, the, on, the, on, the, on what's happening and making those just subtle movements, left, right, up, down, and you will you can almost see by their body motion when they when they get it because like whoa you see this this stress and then just kind of a back off and boom boom you'll see the finger hitting the shutter um it's just it's 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 it is something that takes time uh there's a lot of classic geographic photographs oh boy david allen harvey alex webb uh jim richardson all these people who who come up with the, this work sometimes it's like holy cow the standard just got raised again and it's always images that work on multiple levels multiple layers of information where that photographer has carefully weighted or placed or moved or a combination of those those elements into perfect location so that your eye does and the beautiful thing about a layered image like that is you look at it and it's first take it's like oh wow look at that your eye sees the entire composition and one thing i love about still photography is that intimacy of the still image that you can pick it up and study it and look at it and then look at that overall and then you look into the depth of the image and you watch out wow look at this up you've got this guy on the right with the glasses and boom then you've got the flag and you've got his hand and you've got boom 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 and it allows you to pull the viewer into your world 
And again, if you're successful with this, you know, that audience, they can smell the gunpowder. They can smell that sulfite. They can feel the chill in the air that morning. And that is when you're successful as a photographer. Uh, and that's the, the intimacy that that still photograph creates, and, and especially the layered photograph like that, you know, I'll look at a good photograph and then realize, like, holy cow, I've been sitting here looking at this for the last five minutes. And just relishing, look at Joseph Kadelka's work. Oh my God! You know his his gypsy picture of the fireworks going off diagonally across a frame. You know that image it just sends chills down my spine. Uh, Cardi Brisson's work, Danny Lyon's work. You look at there's classic Robert Franks, um, all these classic photojournalists, uh, and that's what that's what drives me and drove me to where to do what I do. I remember, I, you know, I've been in this business longer than I like to admit. I've been shooting professionally for, good Lord, 40 years, I think. And I remember growing up in the 50s and 60s looking at Life magazine and looking at National Geographic. And I was an, I was an English lit major in college. Uh, with, and I think that those publications really drove me to that uh, desire to be in storytelling of some sort. And in my college experience at one point it struck me i wanted to step into the world of visual narrative uh, and i know that those publications are what drove it and i know that picking those things up those magazines up i'd come home as a kid looking forward to seeing those things at home and it was I mean, like like okay i want half an hour to sit down here and look at life magazine i want to look at geographic and not only be taken to those places that the photographer and the storytelling process was taking us but to be able to look at those images and just to look at that, you know, just that frozen, frozen moment right there in front of you. Um, I, I, th- I hope I've gotten, haven't gotten way off your initial. Oh, question, no, no, this, this offers a good, uh, a good segue to my next question. The idea that life look magazines and, and national geographic to a great extent have provided photographers, the means of being able to tell these stories using these, beautiful photographs. And now we're on the cusp of using multimedia and using sound, using motion, not just stills in order to be able to capture beautiful images and to tell a story. And I know that you are in, you're heavily involved in that. And why don't you tell us about how you approach it and, and tell us a bit about your first light, light workshop and how you're introducing, you know, photographers to this, this, different means of, of being able to use images to convey ideas and stories. Perfect segue. And thanks for letting me talk about that. Yeah, we and uh, my wife, Becky and I started first light back in 2002. I think it was um, Olympus had asked me to be one of their sponsored photographers. I agreed. And I asked them if they'd be interested in sponsoring a workshop idea. And they were incredible about it. And we do these things, and like I said, the, the, the logo of the workshop is the Art of Visual Narrative. And a couple of years ago, um, really through kind of uh, my co-author of my book, Jay Kinghorn, and Bert Fox, um, both are instructors with the workshop, they started saying, God, we really ought to do some, including sound. And I started looking at a lot of the work that was being done down there. Obviously, was quite aware of it. And Todd Heiser's work with New York Times on his one in eight million piece, um, and other pieces. Bert Fox's at the Charlotte Observer now, and they're doing it. The Denver Post does it. Everyone's doing it. But 
what I, uh, and we started, we did our first one with sound on Smith Island in the Chesapeake. And it was, it's, it doesn't replace still photography. It's just another tool to add to the layering effect. Um, it kind of gives a different direction. Uh, you bring in that sound information, you bring in sound uh, with the photographs, and you bring an entire an entirely separate level of sensory information. Uh, but it also changes, I think, of the approach to a bit. Uh, it changes the approach a bit to how the photographer captures that body of work. Uh, we teach our students in first light to go out there and get the uh, get the sound done first, get that foundation built, because that will dictate uh, the visual uh, or will aid and abet that visual storytelling process. Because in those images, it becomes uh, important at times in that in that two-minute, three-minute piece you're building to make sure that your images coincide uh, with with the words, which the, with the dialogue that's being addressed at that. And it's a very, very exciting storytelling process, and it's a perfect one for the medium that's made available to us today through the Internet, um, through the iPad, which I think is one of the most exciting <clears throat> inventions uh, to come along because it opens up the world entirely to the portability and accessibility that we all want and to have the color and the sound and uh, a large enough display and high enough quality display to give uh, uh, credence to both visuals and the sound. Uh, this is a, this is an exciting time in photography. It's a, you know, the printed pages, boy, every, every printed magazine out there is, is working on getting numbers. It's a, it's a tough business. Um, but it's also a really exciting time because I think it's a it's an it's a new frontier out there uh, for the for the young aspiring photographer to come up and kind of define where this business is going, what they're going to do, what how how can I build this body of work? Look at uh, Media Storm, what's being done there? Holy cow, just marvelous stuff! So we have taken this through First Light. We did another one, and we've got these posted on our website actually: www.firstlightworkshop.com. Uh, We've got the pieces from Smith Island. We also have pieces from uh, Du Bois, Wyoming, multimedia pieces of sound and images that I think will illustrate if one, if, if your podcast listeners will go to see these. Um, it's just incredible what you can do in the storytelling process by bringing in that layer of sound. What are some of the challenges you think that, oh, you, you know, you, you're introducing people to this. So what are the, some of the bigger challenges in terms of being able to do this effectively? Because you have to make all these new considerations, not least of which is sound quality. Absolutely. And that's a tough one. It's a, uh, you know, the, one of the big things with editing sound is if you sit there and record an hour of somebody talking, you've got to listen to an hour to edit it down. There are a number of, uh, tips I would suggest to people if you're starting out with it, if you're going to do an interview or get somebody to talk, always talk in the present. Don't talk about, well, tell me about your history, because how are you going to illustrate that? So you, and you also ask these folks uh, questions that can be answered on a, a greater than a monosyllabic answer. It's not a yes or no question. Do you like living here? Nope. 
tell me what you like about living here. Well, I've been here. And then you have that foundation. Uh, keep them uh, collecting, making sure the sound quality is good. Uh, you know, background noises. Holy cow, that can be a problem. You know, refrigerators are in the background. Take the time to get a good recording. Make sure that when you start the recording, you capture uh, 10 seconds of dead dead air coming in and then start talking to them. Don't talk to the person during the recording. Uh, have your questions that you can edit your questions out, but don't sit there and go, wow, yeah, ha, laugh. Don't react because those are, those are going to be disturbing within that disturbing or impossible to edit out in that uh, editing process. So what I we suggest to our students is when you go do the interview, Tell that person, like, hey, you're going to be talking to me, but I'm not going to be answering. I'll just be nodding or something like that. Just get kind of used to it. And and that subject will understand it pretty soon. Um, And then also, if you have to go back to do the interview to gather more uh, information from that person, set the sound system up exactly as you had it to begin with. And if you can put the mic on an independent stand so your hand's not holding it, so much the better. Uh, I also suggest collecting room tone, uh, a couple of minutes of that, just of of nobody speaking or anything, but just the sound of the environment that they're in. If there's a window open, you've got street noises in the background, leave it open and collect that because that can be sound that you can then use to edit in to connect two separate thoughts or statements that that person's made and have it sound natural. So there's a lot of technical aspects that come in with sound. I've also found that I've started collecting sounds. I've I've been working a lot with National Geographic with their expeditions in the past three years um, on trips for them as a lecturer, and I'm shooting a lot of stuff for my stock. I'm also collecting sound, and you you understand very quickly that this can be an addiction. I'm using really high, uh, very high-end Olympus sound equipment that is extraordinarily portable and a very real world for me as a photographer. I can put my whole sound kit in a in a coat pocket. That's a shotgun mic and my my PCM level recorder, uh, so I can collect that sound. But uh, I was in the Antarctic. Uh, earlier this year and sat down with a bunch of penguins and this recorded sound and all of a sudden you find you're sitting there for like half an hour trying to get these amazing sounds Um, and you find that trying to exclude yourself your physical presence is one of the more uh, important things so you don't have sounds of you shuffling through cameras or and also when you're doing one of these don't be shooting pictures during the sound recording because that sound of the click, click, click is almost is disturbing and it's pretty impossible to get out of the sound. But collecting sound is a is a is a uh, an addiction in its own right. One of the bigger challenges is I'm finding is when to shoot stills and when to shoot video because they involve two completely not only different mediums but different ways of even handling the camera. So how how do you suggest that people consider that striking that balance when they're when they're out there producing this content? It it is entirely two different critters because it's a different approach, it's a different uh set of uh, kind of theories I think you go into um collecting video and the, these cameras today have the capability of collecting HD video, broadcast quality video, uh, 
And there are times, especially in multimedia presentations, where you can drop in that video. Um, again, yeah, I don't think and you want to be careful because it's easy to overdo, and you've got to really step back uh, and look at the editing process. Okay, what is important? What's relevant? What do I need to bring in here? On a geographic trip, uh, we're in the Antarctic, and we're cutting uh, in the Arctic. Sorry, it was in the Arctic earlier last year. And I wanted to connect two locations together, and we're on a icebreaker cutting through the ice. So I went to the bow and went to there's an anchor line up front on the bow of the ship. So I put my camera through there and and held the camera steadily as we moved through the ice, and captured the sound of that crunching. And that was about a I used that a couple of places in particular presentation. Um, to connect two locations together with the, this, the narrative of an expert on board talking about we were in this area photographing polar bears and da, 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 then we moved to this location and this was a perfect segue um, but it also is, can be more than a segue and it, it comes down to um, like you said the approach when is it appropriate to shoot video when is it appropriate to shoot stills and when you shoot video you'll find that the live monitor is often the better tool to use to capture it instead of the eyepiece because you're, you want to be able to see kind of the surroundings too. So you've got that the monitor on the back of the camera that you're using and then be able to move the camera fluidly uh, or use it on a, a fluid type head on the, on the, uh, the tripod. It is an entirely different approach and it's a different set of tools. Mm-hmm. There are a few people who've had the, the opportunity to be able to do one thing for, you know, multiple decades and still enjoy it. So what is it about photography that keeps you so enthused and excited about it? And especially since you've been doing this since you were a teenager. Oh, well, boy, good reminder. Thanks. <laughs> uh, it, it, you know, I have been doing it, and I I, t- I say this pretty regularly. Uh, there's times where I don't want to leave my family on assignment. I don't want to go away. I'm kind of tired of traveling. Uh, and literally at that point, what I'll do is I'll reach in the camera bag and pick the camera up. And it still is an electricity that flows through me. It's like, wow, this is outrageous. I get to be the eyes for... X number of people. I get to define, I get to interpret, uh, I get to put out there how I see this. Uh, my, you know, the, the job of the photographer is to make sense of the visual chaos around us. And so therefore, I'm taking a 360 degree environment and I'm taking two degrees out of that that I'm photographing, I'm watching that moment, and my viewer, reader of the magazine or website, or however I'm presenting this to to an audience, is going to have their viewpoint, to have their 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 idea of that world, that particular part of the world, defined by my vision. I still love that. I still, I I. It, to me, it's it's electricity. It's just like, wow. I keep thinking I need to grow up and get a real job someday, but it's kind of like, why? I love what I get to do. I'm still astounded by it. I still, when, I, when I'm when i shooting and you're working a scene and you're sitting there and you're, you're watching it and you're pressing the shutter and you're waiting and waiting, and again, you're not machine gunning it. To me, you're just pressing the shutter when each little moment avails itself to you. And when you see that moment come to fruition in front of you and you press the shutter, 
there's not many feelings, like I said a while ago, not many feelings better than that. And that's what still drives me about this. That's what still electrifies me about this. Um, it's magic. That's awesome. Well, the last question I always ask is I ask my guests to suggest another photographer that our listeners go out, discover, and explore. And it can be any one photographer, someone you've long admired, or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that be for you and why? Gracious. Well, I'd go back. To, I, I could suggest a number of photographers. Eli Reed's wonderful. Jim Richardson with Geographic's wonderful. I could go down the list. Joe McNally, each one of those people have a special place in my visual heart that they do stuff that rings my bell. Uh, I'd go back to my roots as a photographer and say, go look at Danny Lyon's work. If you can get a, co- a book copy of the book, Conversations with the Dad. Look how this guy, its a, he got access to the Texas prison systems back in the 60s, uh, produced this body of work that's just amazing. Um, he was one of the first ones that I remember picking up a purely photographic book, and it was Conversations with the Dead, and just being floored by it. Talk about layered images, talk about moments. Oh, just amazing. It still is a standard that I can open that book up. Uh, and still be electrified and blown away by the work. It's like rediscovering something every time you look at it. Oh, that's a great suggestion. I love Danny Danny's work. He's, he's phenomenal. He is, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much again for, for joining us today. It's It was a great conversation to have with you. Well, I appreciate it very much. I love your website. Keep on doing that. I love seeing people support this amazing craft that we all love and hold so dearly. So uh, thanks for your time. I appreciate it, and keep up the good work. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. If you have any comments or suggestions, please drop me a line at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Flickr. Links to each can be found on the website. Till next time, this is Ibarian X Pirello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.